Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I'm Dane Cash, and this week, as ever, I'm joined by co-host, bike racing analyst, Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, it's good to see you again. Good to see you too, Dane. And uh, for the second week running, Ruth Winter's back on the show. Ruth, good to see you for the second time today. We saw each other riding earlier, although we didn't really realize it until it was a little bit too late. Yes, good to see you too. Uh, we are here to talk Tour de Suisse, men's and women's. The men's race ended uh, this morning. The women's race just started. We've now seen two stages of that. And lots of things happened uh, in the GC battle on the men's side. And I think the uh, the women's race coming up is going to be very interesting. But of course, the thing that we have to talk about, the thing that we should we need to focus on is the horrible, uh, tragic news uh, from from the men's Tour de Suisse. Uh, we learned on Friday that Gino Mater, the 26-year-old Swiss rider on Bahrain Victorious, had died following a crash the day before. The crash occurred on a descent. Uh, we know that Magnus Sheffield uh, crashed in roughly the same area. Beyond that, we don't, as of... Uh, as of when we're recording, we really don't know much about the circumstances of the crash. Uh, we, we, we just don't have a lot of information yet about that or about anything that's going to be done to improve safety. Uh, so in the next few days, I think we will learn more about what happened um, and, and anything else that's being done. But for today, I, it, it seems like the thing that we should do is just remember Gino Mater, memorialize Gino Mater, who he was. Uh, as a, as a as a racer and as a person, he was known as a rider who impacted a lot of other people in in a good way uh, during during his time, and he was taken far too early, only twenty six years old, which is just awful. Uh, you know, as a, as a racer, he was someone who was very much on the rise. Won a stage at the Giro a few years ago. Uh, he finished as highly as fifth at the at the Vuelta, really coming into his own as an all-arounder. You know, starting to show up as a potential GC rider. He achieved a lot as a breakaway rider. Was involved uh, in, a, in a thrilling battle with Primoz Roglic for a stage uh, at, at, at Paranis a few years ago. He was a rider who I think there was a lot to look forward to in, in his career. Just a ton of talent uh, as an all-arounder and just taken from the sport. Uh, far too young. Uh, beyond his racing career, though, he was also just a, a great human being. You know, he donated money for every rider that he beat at the 2021 Vuelta uh, to the uh, to Just Dig It, and then he followed that up uh, the, the next season with uh, donating to environmental charities for every rider he beat all season. Uh, so that's just that's the kind of the person that he was. It was very dedicated to the causes that he cared about, uh, and, and really everyone around the sport who talks about knowing him, you know, describes him as being yeah, just a a, a great person, uh, a, a shining light, you know, within within the peloton, and uh, someone who will be missed. We didn't know him very well here at the podcast, but uh, a number of you know, writers around the sport have have written some some things worth reading about him. Uh, there's a there's an obituary over at Cycling News. 
Kate Wagner wrote something on her uh, Substack. That's uh, Derailer is the name of that. Uh, she knew him better than I think anyone else at, at the Escape Collective. Um, so yeah, there are things that they're worth reading uh, about this person who, who clearly touched a lot of people during his career. So yeah, uh, taken far too soon. And at the Tour de Suisse, they called off the following stages racing. That was stage six. A number of riders and teams pulled out of the race. Uh, Obviously, people were pretty heavily affected by his loss. I mean, his Swiss rider riding on home roads, there was a a stage to come that was going to pass very close to where he was from, actually. Uh, The organization spoke about how, you know, he was somebody that everybody knew at the organization because he was a Swiss rider. Uh, And so, yeah, a number of riders pulled out of this race, uh, the, the seventh stage uh, at, this, at the Tour de Suisse was sort of neutralized from a GC perspective, and then uh, uh, for, with 25K to go, riders raced just for the stage win. So really, after, after Friday, it was just uh, the, the time trial on stage eight that sort of was left to determine the race. Um, and, a, and a number of riders, like I said, they pulled out uh, because they were so impacted by what went on. Now, I said before, we, we don't really, none of us really knew Genomater, um, but I I figured I'd at least, you know, ask Ruth as, as somebody who has ridden in the pro peloton for, for so long and, and somebody who uh, knows what it's like to be at a race uh, when when there are serious things happening. I'm, I'm just sort of curious, Ruth, if you have any kind of thoughts on what it might have been like to be there at this race, because I assume it would have been just a real awful situation for all involved. For sure. I didn't know him um, and my deepest condolences and love to to everybody that did and is really feeling the hurt from his loss. I think I've been in a similar situation where I lost a friend, not from a race, but I had to race the next day. Uh, Or maybe it was the morning of actually that I found out that she had passed away and I, she loved racing. She was a racer. And all I can remember is just feeling this like um, want to suffer because I knew how much she loved to suffer and she wanted to, to race. And I, I think from this particular circumstance for, for both the men and the women that are racing this week, it's just a really strong reminder of how dangerous the sport can be that we do. And that doesn't mean that it's not amazing and beautiful and brings so much joy and and love to do it, just like he loved to to race his bike. And trying to harness that versus focusing focusing on the fear can be really, really tough. And I think that that comes individually, um, the emotions to each person individually, and and everybody should be respected on on how they're going to respond to something like this. Yeah, I think the organization did about as you know, respectable as a job as they could have done in this situation. It seemed like they, they listened to the riders and, and tried to take that into account when deciding how to, well, whether or not to proceed and, and how to proceed with the race. And like I said, I mean, because it was a Swiss rider, it was somebody that I think, you know, he touched so many lives that were involved in this race specifically. Um, and his uh, his Bahrain team the following day, uh, you know, rode a sort of a you know procession to the line and, and you could just see how awful it was uh, for, for those riders and yeah, I mean, like I said at the start, we don't know much about the details of the crash. We don't know much about, you know, what what uh, may be done in the future. We don't know whether there are going to be steps taken uh, to improve the safety either of this race or just in general. Uh, so for now, we just feel like we should remind you that, that Gino Mater just was, yeah, taken far too young and... Any 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 person in their early to mid twenties who 
decides that he's going to donate a Swiss franc per every rider that finishes behind him. And uh, just, yeah, somebody that I think the, the Peloton will, will really miss. And uh, yeah, our, our condolences to everyone affected by this, um, anyone who knew him and any, anyone impacted by his loss in any way. And we, we definitely, um, our thoughts are with everyone who was close to him. Uh, and I'm sure in the coming days and weeks, we'll, we'll know more about what happened and also we'll know more about any kind of steps that might have been taken or might be taken to uh, address uh, the safety issues. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, the placeholders and any other podcast on the network uh, are going to know more in the coming days. So obviously stay tuned for that. Uh, we are still going to talk about the race and, and the rest of the race. We'll try to, you know, draw some takeaways and try to assess, you know, how things did finish uh, at the Tour de Suisse on the men's side. And, of course, the women's race just got underway and lots to talk about there as well. So getting into that conversation, uh, the 2023 Tour de Suisse was ultimately won by Matthias Skelmosa, which was a, I have to say, a huge surprise to me. I was not expecting Matthias Skelmosa to to pull this off. And I at the, when I wrote the race preview, I barely included him as a favorite. I did, I mentioned him, but I, I was not very high on his chances. Uh, and I have to hand it to Cosmo for noticing, even after that early time trial, how strong he was. Uh, he's a rider who I thought was, you know, he was a great climber, but he showed all week that... I mean, this was a coming out party for Skelmosa as a as an all rounder to be able to take the lead, hold on to the lead under obviously incredibly difficult circumstances. Being the race leader in a race like this, Rob Hatch said that on the broadcast today. Just how how difficult that must have been um, being the race leader, the guy in the race lead at this particular event when this awful awful tragedy happened. Um, yeah. Skelmosa just showed on every level that he, I, I think, has, has a, he's got the composition required to, to win a big race. Uh, and he raced smart as well. He was super composed. Like, honestly, it seemed like he had kind of a game plan from the get-go. I, I would not have noticed him if he hadn't finished so well in that time trial because my, my primary uh, data point on him before was, was flesh alone. Um, but he was very, even in post-race interviews, he kind of, you know, he, he really showed an awareness of what every single other contender was doing. On one day, he might see, you know, Gall go up the road and be like, well, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm gaining time on Ayuso. I'm, I'm matching Remco. And just, you know, it was the ability that he had to kind of take that, like you said, that, that kind of really terrible burden of being the race leader in a situation like this completely in stride. Like it never seemed to throw him off. Um, he's just, he, there, this was, is as much as good as his riding was like his head seemed to me the most impressive aspect of, of, of how he came through this race. Uh, I will say it felt a little, a little, a reporter asked him kind of a cheeky question about losing time to Gaul on, on one of the earlier stages. And he was kind of on the, you know, he's cooling down on the roller. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I feel pretty good about him in the TT against him in the TT. And then today in the final time trial, passing him on the course was really like a big kind of exclamation point taking home that GC win. Yeah. I think Felix Gaul is, the, is another major surprise of this race because of how well he did. He won a stage he wore the the leader's jersey. The time trial was really the obvious downfall for him. He, he's just not a great time trialist. He showed that in the first TT, and he emphasized it in the in the final TT. That that's really just not his skill set. Um, 
So he, I think he made everyone else look better in the TT. But Skelmoza was right up there in the, in the TT, in the final TT. He was nine seconds off of the win. And again, a discipline that I was really not expecting him to be that good at. Um, and so he won, let's see, he won the third stage uh, after weathering the storm of Remco Evenepoel doing what Remco Evenepoel does, uh, attacking, holding on maybe too long, not racing all that strategically. We've seen it a lot. We talked about it on the placeholders a fair bit. Uh, so, the, you know, but Skelmoza winning on a, on a steep climb is one thing to, to continue to, you know, yeah, be that composed through this race. And again, such a, a, a unbelievably challenging race to remain composed through uh, just really impressed me as, as, a, as an all-around talent. Ruth, did you uh, get to know Skelmoza in your one year of overlap at Trek? No, not really. I mean, we were occasionally around each other. I was, you know, that's funny. There would be like little different groups of the guys and sometimes you would intermingle with them. Sometimes you wouldn't, but particularly like early season training camps. I think I just noticed he was quiet. You know, he seemed like a pretty hard worker. He wasn't one of the louder classics guys, I suppose. It seems like those personalities is like the climber, quiet, focused group and not that the classic guys aren't that just maybe like play their music a little bit louder um he, he but... wasn't honking the bus <laughs> no. uh, so not too much on his character uh, but i never never got a bad bad feeling or impression from him just a guy that wanted to race his bike hard and do his do his best at training camp <laughs> yeah and i thought i thought i agree with cosmo totally he looked really composed this whole week it was exciting to watch him and then just go when he felt like he had it and that time trial, um, still, yeah, also surprised. Like, I thought he would pull a good one out, um, but I didn't think it would necessarily be that good. So that was exciting to see him finish it off with that. So the time trial is pretty fresh in our minds. I mean, that, that happened earlier today. To me, I was really uh, shocked at the turn of events between, like, 10 minutes to go in the TT and the end of the TT. I was pretty convinced Juan Ayuso was going to win this race right up until he that didn't happen. Uh, Skelmoza did not race. His uh, first split was not great. It seemed like he was losing a lot of time. And uh, maybe in the end, that was just him riding within his limits, uh, riding cautiously, knowing exactly how much time he had to give up. And basically, from the, for the second half of the race, he, he did not ship time to Ayuso, who, who won the stage and put in a great performance. We'll talk about Ayuso in a bit, because I was extremely impressed by Ayuso this week. But uh, Skelmo's again just composed. Uh, he, he might have lost some time early on in that TT, or it might have looked like he was going to lose a lot of time. But he, he was fine. He won the race, won the overall. He weathered those early checkpoints in a discipline that he's not known for, and it's just the confidence and the like. This is the game plan. I'm going to go out. This is my pace. I'll pick it up at the end. It just I feel like it, you almost putting myself in a competitor's shoes. You almost have to ask if he could have gone harder. Because the stage he won, he kind of won in a sprint. He basically just just followed Gall and out sprinted him. And other days, he let people go up the road and just kind of rode pretty tactically. He he did. He opened it up on the Albula Pass descent, um, but really never looked like he was in. He was trying any harder than he had to. And even in the time trial, it you could almost say, well, you know, he knew where that GC buffer was. Maybe he could have gotten that extra second to Remco, or maybe he was just like. Eh. Yeah, I would love love to have kind of known what was going on. Uh, you know, even just in his ear, I'm kind of curious what they would have been telling him in the car and 
and whether it was all part of the plan to go out that that way and then just kind of pick it up or what uh, because yeah it was it was definitely a surprise that's what you want you want you want to be living in people's heads right like you want to, you want to put that stress on your competitors i'm very excited for the uh the uh, radios that we're going to be getting during the tour de france Hopefully, we'll get some sort of information that, I don't know, illuminates situations like these. It'd be great to know what, what that was, you know, what was being said in the car. Uh, I did want to talk a fair bit about Juan Ayuso as well. He's a rider that I think the way that he has time trialed in the past two months, I guess, uh, it really tells me that he is he's the real deal. I think he's the most exciting Spanish GC prospect in a long time. Uh, he, he is a great climber, but he won the uh, Stage 3 TT at the Tour de Romandie earlier this year. And then he won the final TT at this race, also won the uh, fifth stage, the very challenging climbing stage, uh, by almost a minute uh, using his variety of skills. Finished second overall, couldn't quite take the race lead from Skelmoza on the final day, uh, but he did win that TT, and I think... Just all around, I think Juan Ayuso is—he's the next big thing. I mean, he's kind of already here. He was already—he's already finished on a on a Grand Tour podium. But I was sort of sort of thinking today that where it's, it seems like we're in a situation where we have two teams, Jumbo Visma and UAE, that could conceivably sweep all three Grand Tours. Because uh, I could definitely see Juan Ayuso winning a Giro and a Vuelta, maybe, or you know, Pogacar winning the Tour Vuelta double. Uh, certainly seems doable from this team that is just suddenly flush with young talents. Well, not suddenly. They've been this way for a couple of years, but it is really seems like the team to go to if you're a young rider. All right, so speaking of young riders, I was pretty high on Tom Pidcock's chances at the start of this race. Didn't work out. It was kind of meh. Very meh. Uh, yeah, Ruth, I know you agree. What should what, should we be surprised? Do you think he what what, what was it? What what happened? Why why was he not really up there? I mean, I don't really know why. I guess my own speculation might have been like he seems like a pretty passionate wanna win racer, and maybe this just like wasn't on his predetermined list of wanna be up there races. The climbs were pretty hard, but it's not like we uh, well, I guess we haven't really really seen him climb in like big steep climbs like this yet in stage races, but. Um, just overall from the start and the time trial, like he was pretty far back already. And I just wonder if he really is like, this is just training. Um, and I don't, I'm not that motivated to try and do better. I thought it was so weird to see him finishing in like 50th, 49th in the opening TT as there was a mountain bike XCO that he could be winning. He could be putting a tremendous shine on, on Nino Scherter's record setting XCO victory and you know it was still you know great feeling to see you know there but to have him beat a guy like Pidcock to win that assuming he would have there's no guarantee it just seems so weird to me that he would be he would go from like dominant performance in the first world cup of the season to middle of the pack at a at a highly ranked stage race great training like you said but like I don't know. I I I would uh, that would frustrate me as a writer. Like that's the sort of thing that as a web developer, like if I get taken off a task that I like and put on a task that I'm not performing well at, it really frustrates me. And I'm wondering if Pidcock has that that eyes on the, you know, 2025 tour or if he's maybe kind of wondering what Ineos is is really doing with him right now. 
I do think the tour is a big deal for him. I mean, so and there were a couple of points, and it wasn't just Pitcock. There were other riders where the broadcast, uh, the commentators suggested, uh, you know, is this just a is just just a training move, which you don't really hear that very often in stage races when somebody goes on the attack. But I, I know that you know when when Remco Evenepoel went up the road, it was sort of. Is this him trying to win the race, or is he just trying to get some training in the legs? Uh, that you, know, you don't usually hear that, but I guess it, in June, with the Tour de France looming, that's something that's on our minds. And it is there is this gradient of interest in winning this race, for sure, where some riders are just here to kind of tune up. Uh, I, could, I could certainly think of a uh, reigning green jersey champion at the Tour de France who kind of underperformed. I mean, he was... In the top three on three different stages, a lot of fun art. He won the points classification, but he didn't actually win any stages. And I actually thought, this is a race where I feel like if he'd really, really wanted to, he could have been a GC, like a legit contender. But again, meh? Yeah, meh. I don't know. He was there, but he wasn't there. Yeah. And again, he did win the points classification, so we shouldn't be too critical that he... But he's Wout Van Aert. What's the points classification to Wout Van Aert when the stage is <laughs> I, I agree. Well, I, he is... <laughs> points classifications do seem to matter to him. But yeah, I'm, I'm thinking he would have wanted a stage far more than a points classification without a stage. That's, that's like the one where if you don't want a stage, it's the, it's the worst, too. So, yeah. Wout Van Aert, Tom Pidcock, the, the classics stars that I expect to maybe be up in the GC. Meh. I was really surprised we didn't get more of a fight out of the the first the not the non GC but non neutralized stage uh, that Remco won. I really thought when I there was a group of probably what fourteen or fifteen riders that sort of went up uh, on that first or just after that first KOM point, and I was like, oh, we're gonna get like a like a serious battle here, kind of like classic style for the last twenty k of this race. And Remco took off, and that was that. And I mean. <laughs> I don't know if we put that in the Remco being weird tactically folder, like going full in on a stage that wasn't going to gain him any GC time. But I, I was, I was kind of, I thought I saw Wow making a move or trying to match, um, and it just didn't. I don't know. He, like you said, he seemed kind of meh. But I, of all the kind of cross disciplinary riders, uh, I think he's maybe the best dialed in how to get himself tuned in, tuned up, and ready for a, a specific event. I know we saw uh, Vanderpool last year at the tour just completely flat, and Wout, on the other hand, was just absolutely dialed. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of the game plan here. He knows what he needs to do to tune, and he's not going to do anything other than that. I wonder how villainous he'll be at the tour this year, because based <laughs> on the documentary that I've been watching. Uh, hey, listen to the Unchained Binge podcast, where you'll hear all kinds of conversation about whether Wout van Art is really villainous, whether that was maybe slightly played up a little. Lots to talk about across those eight episodes. I have not yet. I just watched uh, Plan B, the episode, and I heard it was a contentious podcast, and I could totally see why, because uh, I had opinions about that episode, so I'm looking forward to see what the team had to say about that. I think well, I know Wap Art himself had opinions. Uh, well, I mean, this was... Uh, this. The whole episode was full of things that I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This is... Yeah. This is uh, objectively out of sync with reality. So I, I'm curious to see how the defenders of Plan B uh, defended it. Well, either way, Wout van Aert didn't win a stage at the Tour de Suisse, but I think he is probably... I mean, I'm not drawing any conclusions for the Tour. I'm not drawing any negative conclusions for the Tour about Wout van Aert. To me, it's like, all right, he's pretty good. He's close. By July, he'll be winning stages at the Tour de France again. Uh, yeah, I think he's good enough to be there. 
Uh, let's talk about Remco Evenepoel just a little bit. He did win a stage. He won the stage that was neutralized from a GC perspective. Uh, he was pretty good in this race. He finished third overall. But I have to say, I thought he was going to kind of run away with it in the GC. And I thought that you know the biggest challenger was going to be Ayuso. Did not expect Skelmosa to take the race win. Also did not expect Remco to not win either of the time trials. Yeah, he just he seemed very good. But he just didn't quite seem at his best, and also tactically some question marks. I mean that the stage where he really had an opportunity to take time with a with an attack, he just kind of faded and uh, never really challenged. Uh, I think he was putting it all waiting for the time trial, and there was one rider who time trialed better than him, and then Skelmosa was just right there as well. I was really surprised on the Queen stage. He didn't try to get across to that uh, Skelmosa group. I mean, they were right there. It was five, six seconds. I don't know if the descent was in his head. He definitely made some comments about the descent. I'm not sure if before the stage, but immediately after, before we knew anything else. Um, And he definitely lost time there. But it was just very much like he didn't seem like he was a guy riding to win the GC. He was a guy who was like, I'm going to make it over this climb and then figure out what to do next. Like it was very much... I didn't get the sense that he had a game plan the way I did from Scamosa and also from Ayuso, who really recovered well from a pretty crummy day on uh, on stage four. Like, he lost almost a minute, a minute, somewhere around that, uh, to all the other GC guys and just kind of brushed it off and was like, okay, what do I need to do to win, put myself in position to win this race? And almost pulled it off. Yeah, he went on, like, the, almost immediately was back, back to flying on the mountains and, yeah, took, like I said, a, a win by almost a minute. Uh yeah, I think the other, I mean, obviously it needs to be said that every rider in this race was going to be heavily impacted by what happened, and anybody who stayed in the race was going to be heavily impacted by what happened. It's just, you know, how, I don't know how much we can really truly say about form or just about form when there are obviously other concerns going on in people's minds for the rest of this race. Um, so there, there is that that needs to be said. I, I think... That pretty much wraps up what we what we had on the run sheet, at least, for the men's Tour de Suisse. Uh, so I think we can move on to the women's side, where the race got underway on Saturday. Uh, with a time trial on Sunday, the same team won both stages, shockingly. Uh, it's a team that they've won a lot. Just a, just a bit, actually. They've even won a few races in a row. Yeah, it's 21 races or something they've won in a row and like 30, I don't know, it's 36 or 38. I mean, tit for tat. I don't know how many this year, like enough. Um, So I think it's unsurprising that we saw them be dominant again at the start of this race, um, both in the the road race and the time trial. The thing that does somewhat surprise me is that they do... It doesn't really surprise me, but it's it's at least notable, is that they, they do it with different riders. It's not just Demi Vollering winning everything. Uh, they do have a quite a diverse array of uh, names on the list of winners this year. Uh, it was uh, Blanca Vos who won the opening stage, and I know that uh, the tactics there were a little bit interesting, Ruth. What did you see on that on that first stage of the Tour de Suisse, uh, Saturday's stage? Uh, well, we had Elise Chavez off the front pretty early on. It was a really, really short stage. Um, I think it was like not even 60 kilometers long. And they, uh, she, she attacked at the first QOM, I believe, and she was away and she got a pretty solid gap for a while. And it seemed like SD Works were just kind of like 
doing what they do, which is let other people work until they have to work. And I don't blame other teams because it's kind of like, what are you supposed to do? Just not race. But in some world, I kind of want to just feel like, well, just don't race, like make SD works work and let at least get like 10 minutes. Because at some point it kind of feels like it's going to have to be the Peloton against them, you know, like SD works and then just one huge other team that's not SD works. Uh, which yeah again isn't really realistic and it's not really bike racing so that's that's not something that's probably going to happen but then as we got closer SD works like oh she still has some time and then they started really helping and and putting riders in there and at the last I think kilometer there was a corner and um I was really like Trek still had a lot of riders even like Loretta Hansen was still there for them after a hard circuit she was still riding really well I think they had five riders still up there and um, Elisa Longo Borghini attacked around this corner, which caused this split. But then there was no other Trek rider close enough to be right behind if, like, it didn't actually work. And so then all that happened was this kind of little split happened with then Elisa. Um, I think there was there was three SD works and Alena Sierra basically, and and Elisa finished. I don't know, not not up there and. I think maybe if Trek could come into that corner a little bit more organized or like had Lizzie kind of like right there, then maybe that could have been a really cool tactic. Like it made sense. They just needed to be more organized and you could kind of see the run up to that point that it almost looked like they had two lead out trains was like SD works up the middle and then a couple Trek riders on the left and a couple on the right. And maybe if they had just been a little bit more together, it could have worked. But I mean, I think if they had gotten a rider onto uh Vollering and Vosh when they uh, when they started chasing after that uh, after Longo Borghini formed that gap, that could have made the difference because the, they were I mean that was anything to make them think twice about closing that down would have been super helpful. You would have ended up with if if it doesn't get caught, you have Marlon Royser against Longo Borghini and Sierra in a sprint, which does not usually end well for SD Works on paper anyway. Uh, and if they do bring it back together, they've just the, the Vollering and Vosh have now both done work to tow, you know, the second Trek rider up to the finale. Um, but it was just, you know, it was, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was, they picked a pretty unlikely spot on the course and just tried something crazy and it almost worked out. It just, stay works as stay works, right? Like they just, they had it, it, the, the react, there was no question. There was no hierarchical rank pulling. They just did what they needed to do. And you had you ended up with Varring sweeping Vosh's wheel in the finale. Like the, their their top rider, their like the the world tour leader is is doing this kind of like crit team, you know, domestique work, and actually ended up taking herself off the podium by celebrating as she came into the line because she's that stoked for her teammate to take the win. Like how it's tough, it's tough to beat that. Yeah, for sure. They they were just always there. Like they just, I mean, they're not always doing something, but they're always there. And it seems like they're always there when it really matters. And I think teams are starting to feel like they have to try something different. Like they need to do something and squeeze something out, which I think Longo Borghini was really trying at that moment. And it was a really good idea. They just kind of didn't utilize the other four riders that they had in that bunch by having maybe everybody in position and ready to go before it happened. Because if they hadn't done that, you know, Lizzie's proven to be like a pretty decent sprinter or if they'd been kind of all together, who knows if they could have been at least on the podium for the sprint. So I think that that, I don't know how they feel about it after the fact, if they feel disappointed or maybe they did have a plan to be together. Cause again, you could kind of see them trying to be together. It just didn't form 
by the time that the moment came and I think like the moment was the moment and she either had to try it or she had to not and she tried it in the end I, I do feel like uh, Ruth you've said before that it seems like teams don't work together enough to take on SD works or just all decide to make SD works do the work uh, so maybe Maybe they just need to listen more to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing podcast. Uh, that, to me, is a good start, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like well, it's hard to beat them. Yeah, I can just imagine being in the meeting, though, and being like, well, we want to race. We're not going to just wait for them. We're going to do it. We're going to we're bike races. What, are we just going to sit around and let them do it? And I would kind of be like, yeah, maybe we should. But then, I don't know. <laughs> then, like, the rest of the team be like, no, no, we're going to try. We're going to try. We're bike racers. And... Yeah, I, I mean, I totally see it. I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad. I just, part of me does want, like, the kind of comical situation that would occur if literally nobody did anything until they did something. Um, but who knows if we'll get that. It's definitely getting into Estee Works' head. Like, there was a lot of gesticulating and angry arm-waving as they were forced to finally chase Um and they're definitely trying to make it not happen. They're trying to make other teams keep doing work that they eventually profit from. And I think people are maybe getting wise. Uh, but we'll see. The, the time trial that followed that stage, Marlon Rooster took the win. Not that surprising. Demi Volering took second. Am I, like, I was very surprised that she rode such a great TT just because we haven't really seen her do that many TTs period. It's just not been something that she has focused on. We, I mean, honestly, the Women's World Tour does not have that many individual time trials already. But yeah, am, am, I, am I wrong to have been surprised, uh, Ruth, about, about the way that Demi Bollering rode? She was just eight seconds off of Marlon Rooster, who is you know, known to be a very talented time trial rider. I think that Demi has probably been doing some work on her time trial, just because, you know, with the Tour de Femmes coming up, she's going to want to make sure that's pretty strong. Um, and do her best her best shot there. I don't know that I would have necessarily picked her for second, uh, but we know her strength. We know that she's a super smooth cyclist, and I'm sure that she has been on her time trial bike um, kind of looking towards July. So I'm not surprised, but or I'm not shocked maybe, like maybe a little surprised at the placing, um, but, but not at all shocked. I think it was a good TT for her. Uh, the, you know, the, the descent at the end, especially. I think back to the Vuelta Femenina and her just blind descending breakneck speed into the fog and kind of watching her come into the last few corners on that TT. It, it definitely saw a similar, not like abandon or anything, but just very confident, precise line setting. And I mean, there's seconds out there that you can grab for zero watts. And I think she picked up a lot of them. She's a smart bike racer for sure, in addition to being, uh, you know, absurdly talented. Uh, and the Tour de France Femme, yeah, it does have a TT. The final stage is a time trial at the Tour de France Femme of X-Wift, uh, a time trial in, in Poe. Uh, so that will obviously have an impact on the race where she is, I have to think, the favorite. I, 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 she seems to me to be the clear favorite to win the Tour de France Femme of X-Wift. Uh, so a TT would, would definitely cap that off pretty well. All right, the race ahead at the Tour de Suisse women. So, yeah, we've, we've seen two stages thus far. There are four stages in total. So by the time you listen to this, the, the race may even be over, depending on when you're listening. Uh, but we do have a lumpy stage three ahead and then a lumpier stage four. 
no huge mountains really to climb, at least none that are going to have a major impact on the race. Um, so it's a sort of sort of a race where you're going to, I think, be able to have an impact if you are a rider who is, you know, punchy but not necessarily uh, a huge high mountain, you know, alpine climber. That said, Demi Volling's pretty punchy, so I don't really know what what anybody can do. I don't know. Is there, are there any? Is there anyone else you have your eye on, Ruth, uh, as as a potential challenger to the SD Works dominance in this race? I think that last time we saw Canyon Saram race against them, they like really did a good job of throwing a bunch of attacks. And I think it would be cool to see, you know, even like Trek and them kind of get together and go off of each other, or maybe you know they could have had some secret conversations before, just see what they could do to try and time attacks together that would be cool i think a lot of the time what happens is there'll be like a really strong five ten second effort and then it just kind of like immediately dies but if you have people you see even if there is one sd works or something in that group maybe not volering but maybe one you just have already pre-decided that you're gonna work together and it and it goes because i think what can happen is it just like gets shut down so quickly immediately and that, that there's just no hope for a breakaway anymore at that point so maybe something like that yeah uh i also think i mean i, sh- I should say that it's not just emmy voller of course marlon rooster leads the race she's on home roads she won the itzulia women earlier this year uh, i think demi voller would be happy to say to marlon rooster hey this is another one of your races go for it they seem to play off each other well not just those two but just in general like the team and it, they just seem to really, really play off each other well, which is why they do do so well, because they have so many riders that can win. And I think they all know that and they all have so much confidence in each other. It really just shows on the bike how they ride. So, yeah, definitely <laughs> a hard bunch to beat, but we'll see what we'll see what happens. All right. That's, I think, what we have to say about the Tour de Suisse women. The Wheel Talk podcast will have plenty more analysis uh, I think they're going to be recording with a little bit more information. So by the time the race ends, they might have the scoop on who won. For now, it just sort of, certainly looks like SD Works is going to keep doing what they've been doing all year. But stay tuned to the Escape Collective Podcast Network and, of course, EscapeCollective.com for more on that. I think that's it for our Tour de Suisse analysis. At least the men's Tour de Suisse will have a little bit more from the Tour de Suisse women by the next time we record, a week from now. And, of course, the Tour de France is right around the corner. Uh, The next show that we do, I think, will be the last before the 2023 Tour de France gets underway, which is pretty wild to think about. So I hope you have a chance to watch the Tour de Suisse women over the next few days. And we'll close it out with just one more... Uh, moment of remembrance for Gino Mater and our condolences as well for all impacted by his loss. We will do what we can to get more information on what happened and everything else surrounding the incident as uh, that news starts to emerge here over the coming days. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the rest of the Escape Collective Podcast Network will probably have more to say, but for now, we'll just remember Gino Mater and the awesome rider and person that he was uh, and and a person who touched a lot of lives around the sport and particularly in this in this country that he was racing in uh, his his home country of Switzerland that's it for 
this week's Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. We will see you next week. Stay safe out there. Thank you.